This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. Today's episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by ChristianBook.com, a huge selection of Christian books, Bibles, gifts, music, and more, all in one place and always at great values. ChristianBook.com, everything Christian for less. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Caleb Lindgren, Associate Theology Editor at Christianity Today, and I'm sitting in for Morgan Lee today. And I'm joined by Mark Galley, our Editor-in-Chief. How are you doing, Mark? I'm doing well, because I just spent lunch with a couple of grandchildren, which gives up, gives the uh, listeners a preview of my precious moment for the uh, day. Well, I don't want to preview that too much, but where did you go? Tutus. Nice. <laughs> it's a train-themed restaurant, yes? It's a train theme where all the, del- all the food is delivered on a little locomotive. That's great. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> now I've stole my precious moment. I'll have to come up with something else. That's okay. I think you could probably reprise it. Yeah. Um, I just returned um, from a week in Denver, Colorado myself. Um, I was attending the annual meetings of the Evangelical Theological Society, or ETS, and the Society of Biblical Literature and the American Academies of Religion, two different in their combined, um, called SBLAAR. And it was a long week. It was full of meetings, uh, lots of great conversations, lots of very interesting papers and sessions. Um, but... And some uninteresting papers oh, yeah. and sessions. Plenty of those, too. I've been to but those I was... events. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it can be hit and miss. Some of them are really interesting, and they can be hit and miss in, in, inside a session, an individual session. But it was generally really interesting and really good, um, if exhausting. But uh, one of the sessions that I attended was on religious liberty. Uh, the subtitle was, Does Religious Freedom for One Mean Religious Freedom for All? And and it was sort of focused on um, how Muslims and evangelicals might interact on religious liberties concerns and what they share and don't share. Uh, it was fascinating. There was a lot of really interesting dialogue and conversation. And so I wanted to bring one of the panelists from that session on to Quick to Listen to talk more about this. Um, so, Mark, do you want to introduce? Yes. Uh, Dr. Jennifer Bryson studies and is engaged in policy advocacy at this intersection of religion with conflict, political freedom, and sports. We'll talk about sports on another occasion, but that sounds interesting to me as well. She earned degrees from Stanford and Yale. She spent seven years with the Department of Defense doing strategic outreach to media and civil society in Egypt and Yemen, as well as a stint as an interrogator at Guantanamo from 2004 to 2006. She was director of the Islam and Civil Society Project at the Witherspoon Institute in Princeton, New Jersey from 2009 to 2014. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you. Yeah, we're glad you're here um, and really excited to talk to you. Um, So yeah, without further ado, let's get right into the discussion. Um, And let's do our standard gut check, which is where we check in with the hosts, me and Mark or Morgan and Mark most of the time about uh, like, what do we feel just sort of like initially about the topic we're discussing? Um, So religious liberty in one form or another seems to be constantly in the news. Some fear that it's being threatened. Others are worried that it's being used to jeopardize hallowed constitutional things like separation between church and state. Mark, what's your gut level take on religious freedom? Well, I do agree with you that there seems to be some confusion about the term and it seems to be bandied about as a more of a shibboleth or a slogan to get people to get on board with a certain kind of view of a religious freedom. But the thing I've discovered in my international travels, and the thing I was excited about having Dr. Bryson on with us, was the fact that 
how we actually understand what religious freedom is depends in a large part on the political and social and cultural context in which it is being practiced. And it's the American version is not going to look the same as the Canadian version, as the Nigerian version, as the as all sorts of versions. And that it's possible that we could have something that we could legitimately call religious freedom, and it might not look the same as someplace else. But how you divide that up, how you understand that, is a fairly complex topic, and I'm really, I'm really glad we have our guest on to help us kind of unwind some of those knots a little bit, at least. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. My knee-jerk reaction, my natural response is to think about it in terms of me. How does it affect me? And I don't often think across religious and cultural boundaries to think about how it might look different somewhere else. So I think my gut level reaction is similar, which is that I could think the term gets used a lot, but I'm not sure what it means. And I don't think about how it means different things in different places and to different people. Dr. Bryson, to bring you into this, and again, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I was curious how and why you got involved with advocating for religious freedom and religious freedom concerns in uh, your career. Well, that actually goes back to my sophomore year of college when I studied abroad in East Germany, uh, when it was still East Germany. This was in the 1980s. Um, I was a very naive 19-year-old. As I say, teenage rebellion comes in many forms. And I went to the Karl Marx University in Leipzig, East Germany, to study Marxism-Leninism for a year. It was I took a year off from Stanford to go. And there I experienced what was essentially a dictatorship. And I was not a religious person. I wasn't even sure God existed when the year started. But I, my best friends there were from Poland and also uh, then Czechoslovakia and other areas of the Soviet-influenced world. And some of them were very deep Christian believers. And I experienced how... I experienced the absence of religious freedom in their own lives. And so that's what got me interested. And then many years later, um, I returned to the subject. Specifically, I spent the last nine years focused on studying and partnering with Muslims who support religious freedom to try to understand that one piece of modern Islam. And I think it's important to explain how I got to that was I was doing counterterrorism work for the U.S. military for seven years after 9-11. I have a Ph.D. in Arabic and Islamic studies, and I kept seeing situations in Muslim-majority countries in which Muslims were advocating for peaceful pluralism because of their faith. They were the ones having their books banned, being exiled, unable to teach at universities, And so I became very interested in the need for religious freedom for Muslims in Muslim-majority countries. Now, of course, issues of minorities are tremendously important, and that's where a lot of religious freedom work goes on. But this issue of religious freedom for Muslims themselves in Muslim-majority countries, I really saw as sort of a log in a logjam. If you could pull that out and Muslims could have the freedom to explore their own religion without the problems of these uh, authoritarian regimes, I think solutions to a lot of other problems could follow. That is really fascinating. I guess I'm curious about your time with the Department of Defense. Sounds like observing these situations on the ground, as it were, um, had a lot to do with your interest in working with Muslims specifically related to um, religious liberty. It was not specifically part of my job or directly related. 
But because it was something I was interested in, I just kept seeing it come up again and again. And then I also wanted to ask about your faith background. Um, We're evangelical Christians, broadly speaking, here at CT. And you were recently at the ETS, the Evangelical Theological Society. So can you tell us a little bit about your own background and connection to religion as it relates to religious liberty? Yeah, I'm, uh, I would say, somewhat of a denominational mutt. Attended Mainline Lutheran Church as a child and uh, didn't like it as a child because I got in trouble for asking questions in Sunday school. Uh, Went to college, was at Stanford, where, you know, it was cool to be not religious, and so I wanted nothing to do with religion. Um, But while I was in East Germany that sophomore year, I came to know God in a very real and intimate and living way. And my best friends that year were from Poland, and they were devout Christians, they were Catholics. And so I, I knew somehow that what I, this experience of God I had had related to their faith, but I couldn't figure out the whole Jesus thing. So I went back to Stanford, uh, was blessed to meet Christians there, were evangelicals, and became a Christian between my junior and senior years of college, and uh, was involved in evangelical circles. And then while I was in graduate school at Yale, I came into the Catholic Church But I uh, have continued to have a real heart for evangelicals, and so I'm a Catholic who spends a lot of time with evangelicals. Good for you, and good for them. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-huh. I have a personal, very intense and passionate appreciation for being able to practice my faith. After I came back from East Germany, I was so hungry to meet other people who knew God And I remember the very first time I went to church alone as an adult, realizing that in America, Christians have the freedom to purchase property, have it privately owned, control um, their own property, and um, control the content of the teachings inside of their own religious community without government interference. That appreciation has, in time, helped me to see that I think that Fostering religious freedom for others is a way of loving my neighbor. Also, I've experienced living as a minority as a Christian, for example, in Egypt and then especially in Yemen, where I've lived twice. And I have spent a lot of time with Muslims and have many Muslim friends. And I've, I've watched how their own religious freedom in some countries of the world is restricted and um, So I have an an intellectual interest in religious freedom, but also a personal passion for it. Yeah, it reminds me of the experience I had uh, right after uh, my seminary education at Fuller Seminary. I was a young man full of cynicism about the United States, of course. Went to Mexico and just saw the level of corruption there and how, even though it's formally a democracy, it it seems like it's... uh, your vote doesn't mean much there. So that when I moved back to the States and entered a voting booth for the first time in four or five years, I actually teared up (laughs) because I knew what I was doing was significant in some large measure that I couldn't quite logically explain, but it was very moving to, to have that experience elsewhere and then come back to the States. What are the major overlapping points between Muslims and Christians on religious liberty? Like where can we partner together? What are the things that we share with regard to that? So for starting points, I think the best place to begin for partnering is really on practical issues, because the doctrinal issues are so complex um, 
Christianity itself is so large and diverse. When we talk about Christians, which Christians are we talking about? And inside of Islam, it's so diverse. And I work especially with Sunni Muslims, who are about 80% of Muslims. But where there's an immediate practical need, and here I think of the examples of India and China, I see real opportunities for Christians and Muslims to partner together to defend the legal right to religious freedom in these countries. So what are we talking about when we're talking about religious liberty? What, what is the extent of the liberty that people want? Let me give an example. Uh, when I visited China, I guess I visited both China and Vietnam under obviously communist regimes, and we met with some Christians who thought it was an affront that they would have to register their church with the government. That was an affront to their religious freedom. Others said, I don't mind registering for to the government as long as I can preach what I want to preach and teach what I want to teach. Uh, you in the United States have to register with your government if you want tax-exempt status, so what's the big deal? So those are the different ways people are thinking about the same idea. So do Muslims and Christians parse that out differently? Here I'd like to uh, quote a, a legal document that is useful because it stands outside of both of our faith traditions. And this is the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights in Article 18. And it opens by saying, everyone shall have the right to freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. This right shall include freedom to have or to adopt a religion or belief of his choice and freedom either individually or in community with others and in public or private to manifest his religion or belief in worship, observance, practice, and teaching. That's just the first section of it. It goes on, but it is a, uh, a comprehensive freedom. And I think that Muslims and Christians share together that the starting point is the freedom to come to belief. Both Muhammad as well as Jesus were controversial in their time, and those who followed them, these two in the early days, had to make a conscious choice of, of do I believe this person? Am I going to follow this person? But it's not just an individual internal belief. The freedom also includes freedoms to gather together in community, to worship, to manifest one's religion, which may for some involve, for example, religious garb. And it also includes the freedom to change religion, which is one of the most controversial points in many parts of the world, and not least of all, in some, not all, but some Muslim-majority areas. Yeah, that's um, that last point mirrors some of my own experience, not personally, but I have close friends that are living in Muslim-majority countries. And in, at least in these, a couple of these countries, there's a, a decent amount of religious freedom given to non-Muslim, non-Islamic faiths um, to believe and practice usually not to proselytize, but there's a lot of restriction um, about Muslims changing their faith away from Islam to another faith. There's all sorts of jockeying, particularly in the context of marriages and things like that. It seems like things are very restricted. So when I decided to study Muslims who support religious freedom, because I wanted to understand what do Muslims themselves have to say? And are the barriers really that, I don't know, you know, does, in the Quran, does it say, kill all the unbelievers? And does it say, if you change your religion, 
you have to be killed immediately. You know, as I began to study it, uh, I found that, for example, the Quran has no punishment in this life for changing one's religion. The only punishment, according to the Quran, is in the final judgment when facing God in the next life. And in a broad stroke, when I looked at what Muslims themselves had to say, um, and these are the Muslims who support religious freedom, who are just one part of a larger story, they were talking about four issues. And the four issues I found them talking about were apostasy, in particular, opposition to death penalty for apostasy, and then uh, blasphemy, and a focus on fostering peaceful responses to blasphemy. The next is equal citizenship before the law. And the fourth one, which is an important part of religious freedom, is honesty, the freedom to be honest. And Islam places a very high value on honesty and strong condemnation of hypocrisy. And if I could give an example of, of this honesty aspect of religious freedom, I read just yesterday that a formerly Muslim musician in the UK, Zayn Malik, has said he no longer believes in Islam and he's no longer practicing. Now, I, I hope he hasn't fallen away from seeking God. I don't know, you know where he's at. But what I think is really important in the story is he's in a context where he feels he can be honest about saying, I don't have belief. And there are Muslims who want to foster environments in which there is greater freedom to be honest, including the honesty of saying, I don't believe, or the honesty of saying, not only do I not believe, but I've accepted another religion. It's going to be a difficult, long, complicated process, but I think it's fascinating and important to recognize that there is movement happening inside of Islam where Muslims themselves for religious reason, because of how they understand the Quran and the Hadith, the sayings and actions attributed to Muhammad, they are looking at these questions and they're saying, you know, in the, in the current modern context, there should no longer be death penalty for apostasy. Let me throw in a question that may just introduce more vague terms that you are free to say those are, that's an inappropriate way to talk about it, Mark. <laughs> but it strikes my first instinct is to say, well, the, the Muslims that want religious freedom are basically, they're liberal to begin with. They don't hold to the strictures of Islam like conservatives do. Is that a fair characterization, or is that even a way to talk about it? I think that's wrong. Um, I think it's inaccurate. I wondered that when I first began to study this, but as I got deeper, there are Muslims who are very devout. Uh, I think we'd even say, you know, very conservative, um, who because they value their faith so much, and they're so rigorously engaged in taking their own sources seriously, they are seeing a, a need for religious freedom. Now, there are some who are, we might say, Western political liberals, who are of Muslim background, who might identify more loosely with Islam, who might talk about religious freedom. They're there. But the ones I've been studying, whose work I find so fascinating, are actually very deeply, deeply committed inside of the faith. And if we think of our own Christian tradition, it was some of the, mo the deepest believers who took religious freedom most seriously, like Roger Williams or Thomas Helwith. Okay, that's fair enough. That, that accords with my personal experience. I don't have nearly the experience of you do. I've been to a few Muslim Christian gatherings, and it's been my impression that 
this this desire for religious freedom does cross theological boundaries in a lot of ways. The ETS panel session had some discussion around uh, defining what religious liberty looked like in in a in a Muslim context, in particular around a couple of uh, international level statements that have been made in the last few years, and then also at the level of religious texts. Which um, you know, if we're going on based on religious texts, how much latitude is there for religious freedom? And some of the panelists um, in the ETS session. Um, were concerned that perhaps the definition of religious freedom in a Muslim-majority context, at least at a kind of institutional level, was being sort of doctored a little bit in order to to privilege certain things, and that it actually mapped closer onto some form of tolerance rather than actual freedom. Can you speak to that a little bit? I agree with that very much. And here, especially when we're talking about governments, there, because religious freedom is a big deal in the West, um, because America has made it an issue on the agenda, I think we're seeing some countries want to respond to this. And they want to say, oh, yeah, 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 we're offering freedoms. But then they say, but we won't allow proselytizing. And yes, Christians are free to meet and worship, but nobody can change their religion. Or we see this very loose use of the term tolerance, which in some of these cases really means that the government is just trying to force a very moderate kind of mushy version of Islam. And here's where it's some of the very deep believers who are the ones who Muslims whose freedom is restricted, who are starting to see the need for religious freedom in order to practice and pursue and be critical about their own faith. Also, some of the initiatives we've seen for trying to begin a discussion about the need to look at the question of equal citizenship before the law, specifically in Islamic law. There was in 2016 a very important initiative called the Marrakesh Declaration. And this was an exciting, very important step forward. I can't emphasize how important it is, but it, it doesn't mean we're all the way there. The Marrakesh Declaration is not a religious freedom document, but it's important because it's senior Muslim scholars from around the world saying this topic is a priority. We need over the coming years to engage this topic. It's, an, it's a step forward and it's a step in the right direction. I think this is where our paths cross because I went to the second or third conference that was trying to move the Marrakesh Declaration forward. So you're familiar with the work of Bob Roberts and what he's doing? Yes. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's where my experience has been in terms of this, where I've met Muslims of all stripes who are anxious for religious freedom. So yeah, there you go. Our paths cross. Um, I can recommend to you listeners, if they want to learn more about any of these, the website islamrfi.org is a website that I worked on for nine years as I was gathering, well, what do Muslims themselves have to say, Muslims who support religious freedom? And I found so much material, and I found that many people, including Muslims I know, didn't know about this material. So I worked on this website for years to provide sort of a central repository where people can read what Muslims have to say, and there's audio, and there's video, the media are in 18 languages, and there, for example, they can read the Marrakesh Declaration. Thank you. Yeah, that's, that's a good resource. Thank you for mentioning that. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, 
Receive. Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us. Written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, Breathe, Receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. I wanted to ask two questions. One of them is related to the recent Asia Bibi case in uh, Pakistan, I believe. That was a particularly interesting case because you have a Muslim-majority country litigating a Christian person engaged in blasphemy, and then there's a lot of reaction, very heated reaction, to uh, the the fact that the case was being brought at all and then the eventual um, outcome of the case. And as a religious liberty scholar, I wondered how you understood what was going on in that, in that case and what's at stake. Because it seemed like you have legal professionals um, in Pakistan making a decision based on a lot of legal arguments and religious arguments. They brought it right in and it's very married, at least in the language that I was reading and hearing. Um, and then you have very hardliners critiquing that in some very harsh language. I don't know enough. I was trying to understand what the layers of that were. So Asya Bibi was accused in her village of blasphemy. She is a poor farm laborer. There, From what I understand, there were other disputes and tensions going on. And then there was a dispute about um, accessing water. And then she was accused of blasphemy. And this is one of the things that's so problematic about these blasphemy laws is that these accusations are often vague or or hard to track down. And I think when we look at blasphemy in Pakistan, we've got to look at multiple layers. You know, Asya Bibi then has been in prison for years, away from her children. Um, and the punishment in Pakistan on the books is death for apostasy. So she was facing potential death for this accusation. But here we have to separate the layers. One is Pakistan has this identity as an Islamic country. And so there's huge questions about what does that mean? And so that identity has created a space for political activists to uh, basically try to fight with each other to show off publicly who's being more Muslim. And then another layer of this is where Pakistan's blasphemy law comes from. It actually comes from the colonial British era, not from Islamic law. And that's really important to understand and is often overlooked. And then there's another layer is the Islamic religious discussion. And here I would point um, listeners to a really fantastic recent monograph by a very devout conservative Muslim, Mark, uh, not by a liberal. And the, his name is Ismail Royer, R-O-Y-E-R. And the monograph is called Pakistan's Blasphemy Law and Non-Muslims. And in that monograph, he focuses just on the religious teachings and on the jurisprudence within Islam. And he makes an Islamic case against the state law that Pakistan has. So with the Asya Bibi case, 
regarding Muslim reactions, you see both mobs in the street who want her hung, and you see Muslims like Ismail and others arguing from their faith that she should not be punished. So it's very complicated. And because it's connected to identity and public politics, it's a real hot button issue. And it affects the religious liberty situation in other countries because uh, there are some countries like Britain that is very hesitant, if not, if not, if if they haven't already outright refused to accept her to come to the country because they're afraid of the reaction of the Muslims in Britain. I have to say, I was a bit uh, taken aback, even shocked that the UK so openly said they didn't want to take her because it would be controversial. I think the best response to that would be for them to say, we are going to stand for freedom and take her. But I think with the Salman Rushdie case, uh, he's somebody else who was accused of blasphemy. They experienced that it's very, very expensive to provide security for many, many years. But also there was a group of Muslims in the UK who started a petition to say that the UK should offer her sanctuary. So again, the Muslim response was diverse and there was a lot of infighting. Yeah. So what's interesting to me is how that situation now, we live in a world in which a situation in one country has these international ramifications for religious freedom elsewhere in the world. That actually leads into uh, the sort of more practical point, I think, um, that I wanted to get to as well, which is, as Christians, uh, how can we be engaged on the topic of religious liberty with our Muslim neighbors? What are the ways that we can be involved in healthy ways? And what are the things that we should probably maybe try to avoid or be careful about um, as we're trying to engage on the sort of shared project of providing an open opportunity to engage in faith um, across different faith lines and across uh, international lines as well. Starting on the healthy side, I think one of the most important things in engaging with Muslims on these issues is a willingness to listen and to ask Muslims themselves, what do you think? What does this mean to you? I recommend, for example, the American organization Peace Catalyst International that is involved in about 12 to 15 American cities. It's an evangelical Christian organization focused on uh, Christian-Muslim relations and provides opportunities to meet Muslims in constructive ways at a very, very local level. And Peace Catalyst also recognizes that religious freedom is an important part of this shared Christian-Muslim discussion. Another thing is we need to make sure that we're standing up for the rights of all of God's creatures. And by that, I mean, religious freedom doesn't mean just fighting for team Christian against others. This is really about fighting for the dignity of the human person. And on something I would caution against, I think that we as Christians have nothing to gain by trying to tell Muslims what their own religion says. We may have read one perspective within Islam, and we have to be careful to not say, oh, okay, well, that's the whole religion, and then try to tell a Muslim who has a different perspective. For example, if we've read something by a Muslim who's intensely opposed to religious freedom, and then another Muslim we meet is favoring religious freedom, I don't think it's our role as Christians to say to the Muslims who support religious freedom, oh, no, no, you don't know your religion. Um, We are here to tell you. 
Yeah, I certainly wouldn't want somebody to do that the other way around. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so do unto others as you would have done unto you. And um, also, I think it's really helpful to view the religious freedom issue in the context of love thy neighbor. Giving your neighbor freedom to pursue truth, to get to know God, is a form of loving your neighbor. That's really helpful. I think uh, one of the very first things you said also um, related to loving your neighbor is getting to know your neighbor in the first place. So um, resources um, like the organization you mentioned, can you remind me the name? Yeah, Peace Catalyst International. Peace Catalyst International. Yeah, um, organizations like that that facilitate that interaction I think are really helpful because there's a there's an Islamic center just up the street here um, in the Chicago area where we are located. Um, and I drive by it every day on my way to and from work. I've never been to it. I don't know anybody who goes to it. I see the people that walk in and out, but I'm very disconnected. Um, and I don't know how to have those discussions or how to even like begin to talk about this without actually talking to a person and connecting with them. And sometimes that can be hard because showing up at the, at their front door, I don't know if that necessarily is the best way to get to know them. Um, and so knowing that there are folks that are invested in, in bringing folks together is really helpful. Never underestimate the power and value of a cup of coffee inviting one person to have a conversation. I was going to use that as an example from a woman in my church who, uh, who, who found out, discovered that there was an, uh, a Muslim woman family living in her neighborhood, and she just invited her over for tea and has been, had regular teas with her and got more and more interested in talking with her and finally made an appointment with the local imam and said, I've got to get to know Islam a little bit better. Now, she's a fervent evangelical Christian, wants to win this person to Jesus, but she's doing it in a way that's very loving, kind, careful, uh, and sensitive. Uh, so that it can be done. Go thou and do likewise. Well, uh, Dr. Bryson, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your uh, expertise with us. It was really helpful uh, for us to help unpack uh, some of these tangled issues, particularly with a faith that is very complex, like our own, um, and that is unfamiliar. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. Also, a reminder to our listeners, um, you can give us feedback about this episode or past episodes of Quick to Listen by emailing podcasts at ChristianityToday.com, or you can tweet at us at CT Podcasts and let us know what you think. I wanted to say real quickly, thank you so much to all of our subscribers who support this podcast and Christianity Today magazine. We really, really appreciate your support, which makes all of this possible. So thank you. And uh, if you don't already subscribe and you'd like to do so, you can visit orderct.com slash quick to listen. And if you subscribe today, you'll receive our upcoming December issue of CT Magazine. And we've got a lot of good content in the upcoming issue. It's our um, December issue, so lots of holiday-related stuff. And uh, Mark, in particular, is there anything that you wanted to mention about the upcoming issue that people might look out for? Well, I, I would especially encourage them to read the editorial, not just because it's by me, but because it introduces something new that our subscribers are going to be able to take advantage of. That is the complete archives of Christianity Today going back to issue one in October of 1956. Wow, so it's over 60 years of over content. Over 60 years of content. I forget how many issues that is. That's thousands, I don't know, hundreds of issues, but whatever, uh, thousands of pages. But what's really interesting about going through those archives is that uh, there are moments when it's just amazing how... I don't know, in time and ahead of time CT was at moments. We were talking about environmental concerns back in the 70s in ways that would make complete sense to anyone reading it today in terms of the urgency of the issue and how Christians should be involved and why they should be involved theologically. 
Uh, but of course, there are also some low points in our history. We did not have a stellar record when it came to the civil rights issue, and I do a talk about that in the in the editorial, and in a sense, apologizing for the fact that we just missed our opportunity to be a prophetic witness for for Christ in that moment. But overall, the archives are just an amazing resource that our subscribers are going to be able to access now. Yeah, fantastic. I'm really excited to dig into those myself. Um, obviously, we have paper archives here in the office, but it's going to be a lot easier. It's going to be searchable, which is uh, which is really exciting. So if you've been trying to find a time to subscribe to CT, now is the time. Not only do you have these archives that you can access, but also we have our Black Friday slash Cyber Monday subscription sale going on this week. Um, subscriptions are 50% off, which means that you can get a full year subscription, which includes access to these archives for only uh, 20 bucks. Um, so that's 60 years of content and everything in the next year for $20. I think actually it's a little less than that. It's like 19-something. So totally, totally worth looking into if you've been thinking about subscribing to CT and haven't picked up a subscription yet. Or you can buy one for a friend or relative or a loved one. That is great. It's the holiday season. People are looking for gift ideas. There's one. Um, and if you want to make use of that uh, sale price, go to orderct.com slash Black Friday. Um, and that will take you to uh, the page to order using the sale price. So I hope you do that. All right, now it is time for Precious Moments, the segment of the show where we talk about something that brought us joy from the past Well, week. I'm going to pick so something Mark, different than up. I said in my introduction, because this last week, my wife and I were on an intense house painting project, living room, dining room, dinette, kitchen, and uh, anyone who's completely repainted from the trim, upper trim to the lower trim, how many steps that takes to ha- happen and how many hours that took. The precious moment. I was going <laughs> to say. Precious moments. Waiting for the precious moment, Mark. You sit down and you just look at it for a long time. Uh-huh. It's even more interesting than TV at that point. Uh-huh. <laughs> the satisfaction, exactly. The satisfaction of a and job. I well often done. do that after I've worked on a project really yeah. hard. I'll just, I'll just sit down and look at it for a long time and just think, I'm really proud uh-huh. of the work I did here. Yeah. So, That's Lord, yeah, yeah. That's a great feeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if uh, listeners want to follow you, find more from they you, can, where can they find? They can find me uh, painting in my house work. if they want, or going to tutus with my grandchildren. No, hopefully they don't show up at no, any of those places. I published unannounced. something called the Galley Report, <laughs> spelled G A L L I Report, which can be found at Christianity Today slash The Galley Report. It's a weekly newsletter in which I link to articles and comment on them, and people seem to find it helpful. Great. Uh, how about you, Dr. Bryson? So we're What's having this conversation this two days before Thanksgiving, and just today uh, I was brought a moment of really neat joy. I volunteer here in Washington, D.C. with a program for uh, young people from overseas who come on a one-year professional development fellowship. It's called Atlas Corps, and I am a local ambassador, and I'm assigned to be a local ambassador to one fellow. So the fellow I'm assigned right now is a uh, young woman in her 20s from Nigeria. And I found out she had nowhere to go for Thanksgiving and has never experienced an American Thanksgiving. And I sent an email out to a bunch of friends and some Christian friends of mine invited her to come along. And I just love that they're extending their hospitality to uh, a stranger who's here by herself in a foreign country. That's wonderful. Again, go thou and do likewise. Invite people to your Thanksgivings. Yeah. 
Dr. Bryson, where can people find more so of your work, follow you if they're interested? Uh, where I have a lot of articles I've written is jenniferbryson.net. And I'm on Twitter at BrysonJS. Great. Thank you. For my precious moment, um, like I mentioned at the top of the show, just got back from Denver for those two big old academic conferences. And amidst all of the craziness of the week, I had a number of really, um, really great conversations with folks um, about the work that we do here. Um, and it feels a little self-serving to say it, but I really do enjoy it when we get feedback from folks and people that are really on board with what we're trying to do um, is really gratifying to hear that. Um, particularly because a lot of it um, I get to pass directly on to people that work um, work with us and for us. Um, like the different authors that write the articles that we run and the editorial team and um, everybody here in the office. It's such a such a joy to hear those things. It's very gratifying because a lot of times we get holed up right. in our it's work. Right, like we publish something that goes out there into the world and, so. and uh, we don't know what happens to it. Yeah, it's just sort of out there into the ether and then on to the next thing. And so it was really great to talk to people and hear, hear from them. And also just to geek out a little bit. I'm a nerd. I'm a theology nerd. And I got to hang out for a week with theology nerds. And so it actually got to the point where I got tired of it. So so that was great. Yeah. Uh, if you'd like to follow me, I am on Twitter at C.A. Lindgren, I think. I'm really bad at Twitter. I'll have to I'll have to look at that a little bit more closely, but I think it's actually C Adams Lindgren. Um C A D A M S L I N D G R E N. I tweet infrequently. Don't expect much. Also you can find um uh, work that I do at uh And you can find them on Sunday mornings playing bass at Church of the Resurrection too. Yes, which I enjoy quite a bit. Thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is made possible by all of our listeners and subscribers. Thank you so much for your support. Morgan Lee will be back in the host seat next week. You can find Quick to Listen on Apple Podcasts, where you can also rate this podcast. Please do so. We really appreciate the feedback. And thank you to those that do rate the podcast. We really appreciate when you give us feedback. Quick to Listen is produced by Richard Clark, Cray Allred, and Morgan Lee. I'm Caleb Lindgren. Thanks for listening. And to our U.S. listeners, happy Thanksgiving. And to everyone else, have a great weekend. Today's episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by ChristianBook.com, a huge selection of Christian books, Bibles, gifts, music, and more, all in one place and always at great values. ChristianBook.com, everything Christian for less. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.